Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in to this week's message. My name's Aaron, and I'm on the staff team here at Eastlake. Everything we do around here depends on the generous donations of our local and online community. People just like you, who tune into these messages and see great benefit from living that idea that life is a gift and love is the point. So if you love what Eastlake is up to, we'd encourage you to contribute by going to eastlakecc.com. With that, let's jump into this week's message. Today, we hear from Bethel Lee as she continues our series, Everyday Spiritual Practices. Please check the description for links to our quarterly Spotify playlist and guided meditation. Hey there. Well, it was another rough week over here. Hashtag 2020. Apparently, it's becoming a new ritual of mine to have a good little cry a few hours before I shoot one of these videos. Oi, that's all I can say. But I am genuinely glad and grateful to be doing this with you. Uh, regardless of what else is going on in my life, I come here freely and happily, and I really want you to know that. Um, and thank you to those of you who have started to send me little messages um, since that first session posted. I really, really, really love hearing from you. It means so much now, even more uh, post-COVID, because it's really strange not to be in a room with you. It's hard for me to do all this talking without getting any real-time feedback from the looks on your faces or from things that you say or stuff that you laugh at or don't laugh at. Um, and it's hard not getting to chat afterwards with you after these talks. Um, I'm an introvert and energetically, so not gonna lie, chatting with folks after I give a talk does take a lot out of me. But without it, I truly have no sense. I don't know how to gauge uh, what is landing for you and what isn't. So please don't be shy, uh, message me, tell me what you're learning from the sessions, from your journaling, from your group discussions. I would really, really, really appreciate that. And just FYI that the saga of Bethel learning to use a Sony camera continues. You may have noticed that with last the last session, maybe a third way in, the Sony camera just stopped recording. Why? I don't know but I don't have time for a learning curve today, uh, so I'm just shooting with my phone for this session, but I have not given up. I'm gonna try again uh, next week after watching some more tutorials. And hey, this is an example of me growing because I used to be a major perfectionist, but now I am just learning on the go, failing forward. So you're welcome to watch me do that. All right, let's get into it. Session two, discernment, the spiritual practice of choosing what's essential. There's something that Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew that I believe has had a bigger impact on my life than maybe any other phrase in the Bible. Jesus says this phrase in two places both times in the context of being judged by a group of people, 
in his case, the Pharisees. And in the first instance, he is being judged for inappropriate dining, for eating with people he shouldn't be eating with, and for eating things they shouldn't be eating or drinking. And in the second instance, he's being judged for inappropriate healing, for healing the wrong way and healing on the wrong day, Sabbath. So he's basically being judged for what he's taking in and what he's giving out, for how he's living a life that does not abide by the rules and parameters that have been set up by those who have taken it upon themselves to decide for everybody else what's allowed, what's acceptable, what is good, and what is not. And the phrase that Jesus speaks in these two instances in response to this kind of judgment is, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, I had always assumed that this phrase was a Jesus original because it sounds so much like one of his verbal judo mic drop comeback things that he's known for. But alas, it is not. He is quoting when he says these words. You can find a version of this phrase throughout the Hebrew scriptures, 1 Samuel, Proverbs, Isaiah, Hosea. Hosea's version is my favorite though, and I think it's Jesus's favorite as well because it's the one that he most closely mirrors. For instance, while in Samuel, it says that Shema, to hear, to obey, is better than sacrifice. And Proverbs says that tzedakah and mishpat, righteousness and justice, are better than sacrifice. Hosea says that kessid, goodness, loving kindness, is better than sacrifice. And Jesus chooses a similar Greek word, eleos, tender mercy, compassion. He says that that is more essential than sacrifice. So here's just one way that this Judaic wisdom echoed by Jesus, this spiritual practice of choosing to elevate mercy and grace above sacrifice and guilt, here's just one way that this phrase and the truth that it holds changed my life. I don't quite know why, but the high school that I attended was seeped in toxic levels of drama, at least in the circles that I was in. My high school really was like the movie Mean Girls, except much worse because many of us were in very unhealthy, abusive relationships. And because a lot of the relationships that my friends were in were so bad, in comparison, I didn't think that mine was. So, for instance, in my relationship, I was pushed up against a brick wall at school really hard one time because my boyfriend 
was pissed at me for wearing shorts that he thought were too short because he couldn't stand the thought of other guys looking at me. I was thrown onto the ground one time, luckily it was indoors, because this was messy, but um, another guy in our friend group touched me without consent in a car ride home after a football game. I had fallen asleep and woke up to hands where they should not be. So I had told my boyfriend what happened um, because I was trying to figure out what to do and who I should tell. And in response, he threw me on the ground. But in general, physically, I wasn't hit ever. I only got light bruising around my arms sometimes from him grabbing me. I was verbally assaulted all the time, but that doesn't leave a visible mark. So compared to the big dark bruises that some of my friends would get on their bodies and their accounts of having large objects thrown at them or being choked or one time I was the passenger in my friend's car um, and we were driving and her angry boyfriend tried to run us off the road. So things like that happened. So compared to all that, I thought that I was in a pretty healthy relationship. I honestly believed that I was going to marry this guy one day. You know, we grow up being told not to compare ourselves to people better off than us, but we're not often reminded not to compare ourselves to people worse off than us as well. It's a double-edged sword. So even when a school counselor tried to intervene because some teachers had gotten concerned about me, so this counselor who I'd never met before because I was a overachieving goody-two-shoes, he, he or she, I don't remember, uh, called me in to try to wake me up to the reality I was in, but they did this using a very outdated, very cheesy brochure, like fold-out brochure, which told the story of a girl who used to have straight A's, uh, but then gets in a bad relationship and then everything falls apart. Well, that didn't do anything for me because I was still a straight A student. I was still in sports and cheerleading I'm, and student council and homecoming queen. So I didn't see myself in her story. Thus, I truly thought I was fine. And I know I was young, but this is true for all ages that when you become this out of touch with the life that you are living, it is pretty frightening how much you can start to overlook, how you can just default to making the same bad decisions over and over again, how much you can normalize crazy. So for instance, with homecoming, uh, the homecoming dance, this all-American idealized event. There's the homecoming court. By the way, why do high schools do this? This uh, force your students to vote for a court of like princes and princesses? It's so weird. It's so creepy and archaic. Please, if you have any power in high schools, make it stop. Anyway, 
for us at our dance, at one point, the homecoming court, um, they we all dance with each other, like, you know, the wedding dance, something like that, where the, we all get paired up and we dance with each other. And then we all take a photo together. And as a large group of people sharing a small space, so often uh, the queen will sit in the king's lap for the photo, which is what I did. And for the rest of my senior homecoming dance night, as I walked around with my sparkly crown on my head, I was just being berated by my boyfriend for what a whore I was for sitting on that gentleman's lap. That was the beginning of senior year and just one more example of the end of senior year. Okay, this is another thing. High schools, are you still doing this? I don't remember what it's called, but it's the thing where everyone votes for stuff like most likely to succeed and then they put it in the yearbook. Please make this stop too. It's so weird. Well, it was weird in my school because my school had categories like most looks like Barbie and Ken, coolest car. You'd think that I went to school in the 80s or something, but no, class of 2000. And my category is so gross, it's hard to say out loud. You'll wanna puke when you hear it. Dream date, ew. When my dad found out that I was voted dream date, he looked at me and he goes, why? And I remember at the time as a teenager being so offended that he would say that. And now I'm like, good question, dad. Why? So weird. High schools, stop making your students vote for things like this. Super gross. Okay, so anyway, for the yearbook, uh, student photographers would take photos of everybody who was voted for something. And if you look at my yearbook, you'll see everyone else in their photos are centered in their picture, as they should be. But in my photo, the guy who was dated, uh, da the guy who was voted dream date and I are barely in frame. We're standing at opposite ends at the edge, at the border of the photo, I, I think our bodies are like half cut out. And this is because when we were getting this photo taken, we were out in front of the school and it was just me, the dream date guy and the photographer. Everybody else was in class, but I could see my boyfriend stalking the perimeter of the area that we were in, like some angry animal just pacing back and forth, looking like the Hulk about to explode because he was so mad. And I didn't want to get in trouble and I didn't want this dream date guy to get attacked. So I basically COVIDed, pre-COVID, I tried to socially distance myself as much as possible from the dream date guy so that we barely made it into the frame of the photo. I'm sure the photographer must have been so confused. So for two plus years of my life uh, during this relationship, things like this happened all the time. They're just a normal part of my day. And I know that this talk isn't about abusive relationships, but I'll just say one more thing 
in case there's someone out there who will benefit from hearing it. And it does relate to the topic of not being able to make better choices for yourself. On top of all the normalization that happens, another confusing thing about being in an abusive relationship or being in a bad situation, which is something I think everybody can relate to, is that I became a participant in the madness as well. For instance, one time when my boyfriend was screaming at me, he was going on one of his rants, calling me all the names in the book, um, because who knows why, maybe I said hello to a boy. It would have been something like that. And we're just in the car and he's just like screaming, screaming, screaming into my face. Um, feeling desperate to make it stop, I finally slapped him, like in, in his face. And it wasn't hard, but it was a slap in the face. And it's the first time I've ever slapped anybody. I'm not proud of it, but it did make him stop yelling at me. In fact, it's the only thing that ever stopped him from yelling at me when he would get on one of those tirades. So I believe I slapped him two other times over the course of our relationship, so a total of three times. And again, I'm not proud of it. I've never slapped anybody else in my life, but things like that made me feel like I was just as guilty, thus I didn't have a right to want better for myself. And speaking of guilt, and this will take us back to the main point. For me personally, because of my upbringing, even more than comparing myself to people worse off than me, even more than feeling like I was complicit, after I started to understand that I was in a relationship I needed to get out of, the biggest hindrance the main thing that hindered my ability to make a better choice for myself was guilt via the Christian banner of sacrifice. Hey everyone, excuse the interruption for a quick minute. Uh, my name is Kristen. I'm one of the team members here at Eastlake, and we're so glad that you're joining us today on the podcast. Um, it's been so encouraging for us to hear stories from people all over the country and the world who are listening to these messages and resonating with this idea that we um, just keep saying over and over again, which is life is a gift and love is the point, and that we are all committed to being a beneficial presence in our own community. So thanks for joining us. I hope that that's resonating with you. Um, it's just really fun for us. So wanted to also say thank you to those of you who contribute this place. All of these things that we do are happening because of people who make consistent, um, even just small consistent gifts. Um, it helps us plan. It helps us know that there are really people behind us who want this thing to continue. So thank you to those of you who do that. If you haven't had a chance to give yet, I would encourage you to maybe think about doing that if you find this beneficial in your own life. Um, to make a contribution, it's really easy. You can go to eastlakecc.com and there's a donate button there with all the info. So thanks so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the message. I think it's near impossible 
to make good decisions, to make the best decisions when guilt has its hands on the wheel. Guilt has its purposes for sure, but making the big decisions in your life isn't one of them. Because guilt will always tell you what you should do according to the rules and parameters set up by some group of people who have taken it upon themselves to decide for everyone else what's good and what's not. And what's true for another may not be true for you. Listening to those kinds of shoulds is the kind of sacrifice I believe the Hebrew prophets and Jesus were calling out. People doing things just because they should. Not really living their lives, not really seeing the truth, not embracing what's essential, what we know in our bones to be good and true and beautiful. Because we're just too busy doing what we should. I love this quote, which is attributed to both Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell, so I don't know who said it first, but you may have heard it. If the path before you is clear, you're probably on someone else's. Let that sink in. If the path before you is clear, you're probably on someone else's. Whenever I asked myself, should I leave this relationship? Guilt always answered, no, you should stay. You should stay because if you go, who will be there for him? You should stay because Christians are supposed to do the hard thing, the sacrificial thing. It wasn't until my second year of university when I studied abroad in Italy for a year, which gave me a lot of pers perspective, new perspective. It wasn't until then that instead of continuing to ask myself the guilt question, what should I do, for the first time, I asked myself, what is the most loving thing I can do? And when I started to ask myself that question, when I allowed my heart, when I allowed love to lead me in my discernment, I got a totally different answer. What is the most loving thing I can do for myself I asked the answer, get out of this relationship. What is the most loving thing I can do for him? I asked the answer, get out of this relationship. It's not good for him to be able to treat another person this way. So take yourself out of the equation. Hope to God that he doesn't ever do it to anybody else. I'm a true believer that people can change, but you staying isn't helping anyone, so get out. 
and that year, that moment when I made the shift from sacrifice to compassion, from heady guilt to hearty love, the trajectory of my life completely changed. I cannot imagine, I do not even want to imagine where I'd be right now if that hadn't happened. But I truly could not start making better decisions for myself until I took the keys out of guilt's hands and gave them to love, to compassion. Because guilt, fear, anger, righteousness, they are all sloppy drunks, terrible drivers. They get to be in the car. They all have roles to play. But as Elizabeth Gilbert put it when speaking about fear, they do not get to choose the music and they do not get to drive. Can I get an amen? Message me. Okay. Journal time. Please get your notebook or your paper and a pen. Here are your journal prompts. In my life, I have felt the need to sacrifice. I often feel guilty for. When I feel guilty, I tend to In order to feel safe, I need. I feel generous when. And the last one, the most loving thing I can do for myself is. So of course, pause me as much as you need to. When you are ready for your group or partnered conversations, here are the prompts for your circle work for this session. Describe time in your life when you really experienced the difference between sacrifice and mercy. Number two, what are the shoulds in your life you want to stop engaging in? Asked another way, in the words of Jerry Colonna, how have you been complicit in creating the conditions in your life that you would have said you didn't want? And the final prompt, looking back, when did an act of loving kindness completely 
redirect your life. And now we'll close this session doing a little practice together to help us know and choose what's essential. So a lot of spiritual practices are not about adding things to your life. They're about taking them away, shedding the excess. Fasting is an obvious example, but for instance, even with meditation, it's not about adding meditation to your day. It's about taking away some of the noise from your day. And so with the spiritual practice of discernment, in order to find clarity, you first have to do a lot of decluttering of the mind. You need to make space so that you can see. I share this quote often because I love it so much. Meister Eckhart says, God is not found in the soul by adding anything, but by subtracting. The truth is not found in the soul by adding anything, but by subtracting. The answer you're looking for is not found in the soul by adding anything, but by subtracting. If you have ever decluttered a very messy and disorganized space, you know that when you do a deep clean, first it's going to get messier. So let's do some deep cleaning for discernment now. Let's empty out some of the cluttered drawers of our minds. Please grab two sheets of blank paper, a pen, which you should already have from the journaling, and if you can, a handful of colors, so crayons or markers or colored pens. You can put me on pause as you need. But when you're ready, place the two pieces of paper in front of you. And on one of them, you're going to write down all the aspects of your life that you're happy with. The parts of yourself and your life that you're satisfied with. And on the other paper, you're going to jot down all the parts of your life that you're not happy or not satisfied with. So these will just be like one word answers or short little uh, statements. And you're not going to be asked to share this with anybody. So just try to be as honest as possible. Clarity begins with honesty, which is why confession is a spiritual practice. And this first part really is a confession. Confess onto the paper what you like and what you don't like about your life. So examples are things like my job, friendships, quality, quantity of sleep, where I live, the food I eat, my health, my body, social media intake or outtake, my marriage. And when you write it down, just plot them on your paper uh, kind of randomly and just spread out so that there's space around each word or statement. Put me on pause and please come back when you're ready. The writer Anne Lamott says that her favorite prayer is, thank you, thank you, thank you. Help me, help me, help me. 
And that's what we've created here, a list of thank yous and a list of help me's. And first, just in case this is something that you struggle with, I want you to take a moment, look at your paper, z, both of them, and embrace how wonderful it is that you have things that you're thankful for and that you have things that you need help with. Like in a bigger picture way, um, of course we can hope to eventually develop a sense of gratitude for all the things in our lives, the things on both pages, but I think it's really important to recognize that you would not be any better of a person if your thank you list is longer than your help me list. I think that's a lie that can really mess us up. Look, whatever you clear off your help me list, something else is going to fill its spot. That's just the way life is. So it's not about being perfect. It's not about pretending to be thankful for something that you're not. That's just a recipe for denial. Much more important, I believe, is the practice of being honest. Really honest about where you're at and how you feel because that is going to reveal to you what you need, what you want, and how you might start to make room for this in your life. So thank you for being honest. It takes a lot of courage. Okay, now let's wade one foot deeper. Next to all of your words and short statements that you have written, in the space around them, start to write phrases or sentences explaining the why. Why you are or are not satisfied with that area of your life. So, for instance, if I wrote, wrote work, uh, my job, on my help me page, then around that I might start writing things like because I feel burnt out or there's too much to do or my boss micromanages me. So again, put me on pause and come back when you're ready. So one theory on the psychology of fulfillment and happiness says that all the parts of your life that you're satisfied with are the parts where your life in this area matches or exceeds your expectation. The blueprint in your mind for how things should be. And all the parts of your life that you're not satisfied with, well, that's because you have an idea, an expectation, a blueprint in your mind for how this part of your life should be and the reality of your life does not match it. And if this is the case, then there really are only three ways to move forward. One, change your life, change reality. Two, change your blueprint, change your expectation. Or three, change both. So on your own time, you might want to go through each item on your Help Me page and dig into what you might be able to change here, what you're willing to change. Your life, the blueprint, or both. But let's just do one more thing together with our pages right now. So Greg McCowan wrote this excellent book called Essentialism. I highly, highly recommend it. 
And I believe he had this quote in there by Lin Yutang. The wisdom of life consists in the elimination of non-essentials. So first, take some time to look over your thank you page and start making notes about things that you could eliminate in your life to make more room for those things, for those things to have the space to expand. And then part two, in Essentialism, McCowan talks about the power of making the one decision that makes a thousand decisions. So take a look over your Help Me page and using your colors, start to mark similar themes by just like circling them or highlighting them. So for instance, if I looked on my page and I found a phrase like, I'm feeling overwhelmed because I'm too busy these days. I'm feeling resentful for all the favors I'm doing for people. I'm feeling sad that I have once again put off a passion project because I don't have any time for it. Well, to me, those are all, all kind of similar. And so I would circle those with the same color. And after you've done that with all of your statements, you've categorized them and bunched them into similar themes. Uh, name that theme. <laughs> Name that, name that game, name that theme. So for my example, the way I might name that, might, I might write just too busy. These all fall under, I'm too busy. And then for each cluster, try to see if you can make one decision that will make a thousand decisions for you. So for instance, with my example, my one decision could be something like, I am going to say no to all new favors asked of me for the next six months. And the great thing about this, if you're doing this with me right now, is that because I know how hard it can be to say no to people, you can use me as your excuse. So depending on who you're talking to, depending on who they would consider an authority, you can say, I promised my minister or my counselor or my friend that, you know, I promised them that I'm not going to, I have to say no to all dot, dot, dot for three months or six months or a year, whatever you're going for. And I just think this is such an important practice. If you really want to start shifting your life, because to be able to discern the really big, important things in our lives, we first need to get out of the weeds. So I hope this practice can be helpful to you. I hope you have really great conversations with your groups and your partners. I hope you tell me about them, message me. Thank you for joining me today. And as you go from here, may you embrace what is essential. May you eliminate what is not. And may the path that you are walking be clearly yours.
Thank you for joining us. To make a donation, head to eastlakecc.com slash donate.